excited to hear. Um, I've heard a, a few different presentations given um, by the Gideons, and usually it's always a different one, which is always encouraging. Um, but I, I love just seeing kind of the scope and the, the magnitude of the way the Bibles are being distributed all across the world. I think um, the number that was given was a, a dollar and a quarter or so. Um, and that's not just to be able to have a Bible ready to go somewhere. And then on top of that, it's cost of getting it to people. You're factoring in the cost of the Bible um, purchased and delivered into the hands of a person. So one of the things that I love so much about that ministry is you know exactly what you're giving to when you give to it. Um, a lot of things in the world you're giving money to and just saying, hey, I hope something good comes from this. Um, I'm really hopeful. And there's not really a lot that gets um, lost in translation as it could in so many other ministries. It's the Gideons want to put Bibles into the hands of people and encourage them to read it. And that's pretty much the best thing that we could ever do. Kind of our best witness is going to be just take some time and read for yourself. Um, maybe it's just me, but at times I don't always explain things the best way that I should. Or I can, um, I can be an error at times, but even something that we looked at this morning in the Sunday School, the Word of God is never an error. God cannot be an error. It is completely true. So I just absolutely love the ministry um, dedicated in, in prayer and putting Bibles into the hands of people all around the world, um, especially here locally. And I'm sure that they would even be willing to have anybody, if you didn't want to just help financially, helping and passing them out would also be wonderful too. Um, great conversations with people in the local um, areas as well. But this morning I want to turn your attention here. Um, we're also in Philippians. We're going to be continuing on in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. A few verses as we continue our study throughout this book. Um, we're going to kind of jump back a few verses into verse 18, but we're going to finish out through verse 26. I just want us to see and to read a little bit of the context that we've been in. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose, I wot not." For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this time that you've given. We thank you for the constant uh, grace and mercy we receive that is new from you each and every day. I thank you for the encouragement that you've given us of, of one another in your church, that you've united us in one faith and one baptism and, and the, the unity of the body of believers. We thank you for the, the salvation that so many of us here have received. God, I pray that 
as we look here um, in the words of Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, that we would see um, such an incredible, profound truth of in life or in death, always giving you praise, always giving you glory, and rejoicing even in the midst of our sufferings and trials that go on. God, I pray that we would be um, built up through the nourishment of your word here this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning as we look here, um, continuing on, and again, I feel like we've been in Philippians for a very long time, and yet we still haven't even completed the first chapter. Um, at times we've gone on a very uh, slow pace, at times we've gone much quicker. But this morning, going back into verses 18 through 21, just to offer some of the context of where, where we've been, and if you haven't been with us each and every week, we constantly see Paul rejoicing even in the midst of suffering. We see him in prison, again, a foot and a half inch away in chains from these, from these Proterian guards, these Roman guards that are here. And yet, rather than complaining about a situation and complaining about the fact that he is in chains and he can't do this and he can't do this, he simply takes this and says, hey, not only am I chained to them, they're chained to me, and uses the opportunity to share the gospel, to talk about the things of God, to encourage and to pray for those that he is with. When you grow up and you learn about making the best of your situation, this is what it is that we're looking at. Um, when the child complains to the parent or to the teacher, and the, the authority figure tries to give the perspective of, hey, try to make the best out of whatever circumstance that you're in. Usually, when you've heard that, um, how many of you that kind of like irritates you to hear, well, you just need to make the best of your situation? That drives me kind of nuts a lot of times. Um, some of you, I think it does, and some of you are afraid. I'm going to start naming names soon. No, I wouldn't do that. But what I love here is this consistency with which Paul is writing this to give as an example to the Philippians. They are writing and reaching out to him, concerned for him, because they know the struggles, they know the trials, they know all that he has been through. And they're reaching out to him, and through the first half of chapter 1, he just is consistently saying, do not be worried about me. The gospel is being furthered because of this. Do not fret, do not be concerned continue in your prayers for me, but things are okay, and I am rejoicing because the gospel is being furthered. This is an incredible testimony to someone who is firmly rooted in the gospel. Despite all that he has written about, despite all that we have already covered, his ministry was still a joyful experience. And we close this last week in verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And he's going to continue on along the similar lines here, starting in verse 22. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. Here he's saying, if we are to live in the flesh, and all of us that are here are currently, we are living in the flesh. Oftentimes when the Bible is talking about the flesh, it's referring to our fallen nature, our sinfulness, our sinful condition. Here he is more making a parallel, though sinful condition is still absolutely true here in the context, making it clear that this is in the, the physical existence and the humanity that he has. Because you're going to see what he's comparing between verses 22, 23, as well as in 24. But he's saying in this physical humanity, if I'm, while I am still here, if I ought to live in this way still, this will be the, there will be a fruit in my labor. And then he closes with verse 22 saying, What I shall choose, I wot not. 
He's saying, if given the choice, I don't even know what I would choose between the options. Because here we see him having this parallel and saying, what I, do I want to just be in heaven with the Lord right now, as so many of us greatly desire? And in contrast, this understanding of, or do I want to continue on living here and serving the Lord? And as we go through this, I want us to see that neither of these are bad options. These are not things that are in opposition to one another. These are not co contradictory. They're not conflicting with one another. And as he's going through all of this, you see him, there's this juxtaposition that goes on. He's in a straight betwixt two. There's two different options that are going on here, and neither one is a bad option. Am I to continue living here on earth in service to my Lord and my God, giving him glory in the way that I serve and, minister, and, and I'm a minister of the gospel? Or would I rather desire to be in heaven to see him as he is and to worship him and give him glory there? Neither option is a bad option. And he's saying even here in verse 21 and 22, even if given the choice, I don't know which one I would choose. Think about the current state for so many of you. Just kind of go through this internally. How great would it be to be a minister of the gospel, to be going out to share the gospel, to serve God and give him all the glory here while we are physically here on earth? That is what we are called to do, is it not? This is a great desire to be passionately um, involved in service and in ministry and contending for the gospel. Yet on the other hand, it is also a great desire of every Christian to be in heaven, to enjoy him and to have that rest and, and to have that in the fullness of our, our reality. So here he, you see this, this contrast of these are both options and I don't even know which one I would choose because in both, God gets the glory. Whether here physically wrapped in flesh, we serve, we, we talk about the gospel, we display the gospel, we live it out, God is glorified, and yet even in death and as a Christian is in heaven, the Spirit is caught up, we see Him in His glory, we continue to glorify Him there. One of the things that I found as I studied through this and even thinking is that it, we live as if this time that we have now, oftentimes, we, um, this morning in Sunday school we talked about contradictions, right? And I said, I contradict myself quite often. I think far less now, because I'm at least aware of it, so I just don't say those things out loud. Okay, so no one can hold me to it. Okay, I'm at least good enough at that part. I realize my own foolishness. But being able to go through and, and under, for the Christian to understand what is, our, what is our eternity, we know our eternity is secured through salvation, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Our eternity is in heaven. We are here for a time. This is, not, this is not our home. We understand that and we know that. And yet often we live a life as if all we want to do is just get to heaven, this mad dash, this race to heaven. We live each and every day with just an eager anticipation. I think it's great to anticipate those things and to be excited about it. And yet we can often very much forget God will be glorified in the way that we love him, show him, and serve him here in this time. Not just then is he glorified. It is in all times, in all circumstances. That is the call for the Christian. And then here's where the contradiction comes in. I often want heaven to be here now. We don't always live with this heavenly mindset of those things that we know to come are actually going to be true. We want heaven to, to come down here. We want all of those realities right now as if this is the only life that we have. Where we think about this, this understanding of what heaven will, will be and we like to amend it to what we've seen, as I've discussed in the past on, on movies, or just what we desire. And often, Christ can kind of be secondary in so many things. 
we think about, well, I know that he said he has a mansion for me, and I'm really excited for this, or I heard that the streets are beautiful, and I want that. And we, we went through it uh, a week or two ago in the Sunday school of what is the first thing that John saw when he when he's caught up into heaven and he sees all that is there, what does he see? He sees the throne and God seated on the throne. He doesn't sit there and talk about, look at these houses, look at all these beautiful, majestic things. It is the throne where God is, seat, is seated because that is the primary. And so I found that even as I studied through this, my contradictions can come into play of, well, I, I definitely am looking forward and eagerly do await the day of being in heaven and dwelling with him forever and all that that is. But I don't want it to be today. This is kind of the thought process that so commonly can come as well, but not today because I have all of these things that I still have to get done. I have all these things that are going to be doing. Or a person that, well, I, I'm excited for heaven, but I want to move into this new new place first or I want to see how this job goes or I want to do all of these other things as if eternity is just kind of a secondary understanding. We see frequently setting our eyes on things above, having a heavenly mindset, going through in so many of these ways. So Paul here is holding these two things in each hand and saying, both desires are good. I don't know which I would choose. He is in a straight betwixt two he desires to depart and to be with Christ, which he says is far better, and not just far better. The original rendering of this would be very much better. It is a very much, much, much better thing, right? Incredible emphasis here. It is the best, best, besterest possible thing that you could ever have. If you love grammar, I am so sorry for the anxiety. It, I say that because it bothered me personally to say it. But hopefully the point is being displayed, right? It is far better for me to be with Christ. His own interests, his own desires in this way, it is far better in verse 23. But then he says in 24, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is far more needful for you. Yes, though I desire to be with Christ, and yes, though that is going to be far, far better, it is better for you that I remain here in this time, continuing to disciple, continuing to serve, continuing to minister, because clearly Paul is aware, if I am still here, the Lord has willed that I am still here. No matter how eagerly I anticipate my arrival or entrance into heaven, if the Lord has called you to stay here, and he has if you continue to stay here, then that is where you are to be. And I reflect on so many of these things and so many conversations I've had over the last few months and understanding of working in the high school in the basketball context and knowing so many kids and how suicide rates are going out of control now. It's going up and up and up. And it's even glorified in, in movies and television shows now. It's surrounded and kind of encouraged for things of, well, this is your only option, or saying as if it's an acceptable route, which is, which is an incredibly discouraging thing, even without a biblical perspective. Just... That is where depravity continues to go, where life is no longer important. But I look at this and hear, as we've seen him even saying, whether in life or in death, he is going to rejoice because he knows God is the one who sovereignly controls whether you live or you die. He's the only authority over life, the only authority over death. None of us here in this room chose to be alive in the first place. None of us made a choice of, I want to be born today. I don't, I'm confident in that. I was good in science classes. 
in the same way that none of us get to decide when it is that we get to die. That is not our place. We do not choose our life. We do not choose our death. And here he goes through and says, regardless of my circumstance, and I think we could say that whether it's life or death, or these are pretty big extremes, would it not? This isn't just whether I'm happy or whether I'm sad. This is whether in life or in death, I will glorify God and I will rejoice in the midst of everything. So in 22, as he's writing, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Made you ask, what is fruitful labor? I think if we were to, again, take polls widespread throughout our, let's just even go within our own, um, our own local context here. What would fruitful labor, how would you define that? How would you explain that out? We would have an incredibly wide range of answers. For many people, it's success in my workplace. That would be my fruitful labor. The primary would be a successful workplace or a successful um, experience in ways or whatever it is, hopes and dreams, all of these different things. Do you think Paul is talking about success in the workplace or an incredible home or an achievement of status or great education that he can throw in everyone's face? For him, the fruitful labor was simply the work of the Lord. If you turn over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, and six, the fruitful labor, the only labor that is ever fruitful is the work in the Spirit. And he's writing, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. That fruitful labor has to first require the gospel, the work of the Spirit, those things which bring forth fruit. This is why all of our best efforts apart from Christ are done in vain. The greatest works that we could ever see, that we could ever do apart from Christ is filthy rags, right? Incredibly filthy. The stain that even the best mother couldn't get out. This is what our works apart from Christ are. Filthy and it's not fruitful. So here Paul is unsure of what it is to choose. And, and this contrast, again, of, of life or death, he's not opposing God's will in this place. Both desires have, are strong and they are, they are proper and they are good. If, of the idea of glorifying God in heaven, that is a good and a great desire for the Christian. Glorifying him here while we live in the flesh is a good and a wonderful desire for the Christian. That's what we are called to do. We see churches, um, the Thessalonians, hearing that, oh, Christ is going to return. Well, let's sit back on our hands, and we're just going to wait until he does. We're not going to do anything. They were chastised for that. Why? Because God had given them life to minister. He had, even, he had given them the ability to do what it is that they've been called to do. In the same way, we don't live as if this is our only life. We don't conduct our day as if we're only ever going to live here on this earth and there is no eternity. But yet often the way that we structure our day is surrounded with making this the absolute best life we could possibly have with all of the comforts and all of the things that we've ever wanted. It says remaining in the flesh is more necessary for them. He's showing his own personal priorities that his care for, the, for them is more important than what he desires. You can see him saying, hey, if you're giving me the option of being in heaven with Christ, with him, seated and being, seeing all of him, 
Um, that's definitely a really good option, but it's better that I remain here because clearly God has purposed and willed for it to be. To abide in the flesh here is more needful for you. And he says this because of what he wrote in verse 12, that brethren, the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Do you think when Paul is getting beat, when he's getting arrested, when he's getting ready to be beheaded, and all that he had ever endured, do you think there were times where he thought, you know, being in heaven right now sounds awesome. This would be a whole lot better than what it is that I'm dealing with now. But yet he endures through them, knowing that if he continues to remain in the flesh, continues to live, that that is what God has willed, and he is going to serve, and he is going to share the gospel through it. And he's not complaining, continues to rejoice because he is saying clearly there is still something to be done. And saying, all of this is happening to further the gospel, so why wouldn't I rejoice in those things? When he talks about magnified in verse 20, magnified in my body, whether it be life or by death, this was not a metaphoric understanding. This is not a, a hypothetical for him. If you remember, in giving a testimony, he's taking off his shirt, lifting up his robe, and showing his back and seeing all of the stripes that he had taken in his life. The constant beatings. When we see Paul writing about, about, being, about his body, Christ being magnified in his body, this is an absolute reality for him. An absolute reality for Paul. And all of it was because of the progress of the gospel and his love for the church. Verses 25 and 26, he, he closes this text here with a little bit of an exhortation, and he encourages them yet again. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me, by my coming to you again. Can't you see how confidently Paul writes in so many of his letters? He is not unsettled. He is not wishy-washy. He's not just hopeful with this wishful thinking. He is certain. This is what we saw in verse 6 as well, being confident of this thing. And here again, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all. And in verse 26, when he says that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me, he's not trying to put the attention back on himself. He's not saying, hey, you're going to be rejoicing in all that I've done. You're going to be giving me the credit. You're going to be giving me the glory for the works that I've done. This would be better understood as, the, as Christ in me or Christ through me. Again, Paul is not one to take credit for things. What do we see him doing in chapter 3? He lists out his whole resume. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Pretty much any job that you wanted him to do that had anything uh, related to a church or theological, Paul was the guy. Both for the Jew and for the Roman. He could do it all. Lists it all out and says, it's worthless. It's manure. It's dung. You could see that in verse 4 all the way down through a few verses there in chapter 3. In verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, 
that I may win Christ. This is why for Paul to live is Christ, to die is gain. All of it could be lost for the sake of Christ. With the teenagers, we've talked about idols the last couple weeks as well. Those things which come into our life, they get more of our attention, more of our time, more of our love, our affection, our desires, all the things that we tend to dwell on, so much more than Christ. We started listing what are potential idols, and it's a massive list, right? First we started out looking at wood carvings and things that people um, take down a tree and they carve an idol out of it and then they worship it. And we talked about how stupid that is, right? Because it's a fake thing. You just made it. It's a tree. What do you do with the excess tree? You just leave it, right? But then we looked at all the different lists of things and you start going all the way down the list and go, that's like everything else. Isn't that the truth? Everything else but God becomes an idol. And even then being able to say, look, even your spouse, even your best friend, even your children, even all go down the list. Your marriage is not supposed to be, ref- be an idol worship understanding. It's to reflect Christ and the church, right? So don't worship your wife. Don't make your wife the absolute first priority for your life. Don't make your husband, really don't make your husband the first priority or the first thing in your life. We are going to let each other down. That is the absolute reality of people and of flesh and sinfulness. But this is the beauty of the marriage, is that even when one is lacking in faithfulness, the other one is. The other one brings in faithfulness. They, they abide, they continue. And this, think about Christ in the church. Man, Christ has been an incredible spouse, right? We have been absolutely wretched. Terrible. But he continues to remain faithful to his people because he said that he would. He can't go back on it. He cannot leave his people. He cannot say, and this is what we see so much in Hosea, he doesn't say, I will be faithful to you as long as you are faithful to me. Where would all of us be if that were the case? That the moment we showed any bit of unfaithfulness to God, he just withdrew himself and said, okay, I'm done with you. But this is truly what is so often taught with works-based salvation or merit-based salvation is that you have to earn it. And there's a constant fear that maybe I haven't done enough this week for God to love me. Maybe I haven't done enough now to feel as if I am still secure in my salvation because this is the beauty of grace. You have not done enough. I guarantee that. You will never do enough. I also guarantee that. But Christ did. Christ has done far more, exceedingly more than we could ever do. So when Paul writes about living as Christ and dying as gain is because he understands the reality of what it is that he's saying. He's not looking back and saying, man, if I am to die, I'm going to lose everything. He says, no, no, I gain everything in my death. I gain him in the fullness of my reality because even though we know it is true now, we don't always live as if it is and we lose sight of it. It's not as if Paul is going to die and now Christ is actually the reality for him. He very much is currently for Paul as he writes these words. But he finally realizes it so much more vividly. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. And he's confident, he's rejoicing, and he so wishes that their joy also would be abundant in Christ. And he's showing that he he longs to go to them. And 
I'm not going to, for sake of time, go through what happens here after Paul is released and acquitted on charges. And we see, we see this incredible ministry and these things that, that Paul does after this circumstance. Now imagine if his whole attitude was, well, I'm in jail, so I'm, I'm, I guess God's probably done with me. So many things were accomplished, so many different things. Paul shows his love for the church and for other believers and for his Savior and saying that though I greatly desire to be with the Lord, for that would be far better, it is better for me to abide in the flesh. It is more needful for you, for those around us, to continue. Again, self-interest. How often, how often do our self-interest kind of tend to creep up and kind of push everyone else to the side? Here he holds a great love for the church. We can go all the way through all of Paul's letters and see an incredible, profound love for the people of God, for the church that Christ has built, the church that he died for. Imagine if all that were in the church, all that claimed to be a part of the church and the people of God loved the church as much as Paul did. You'd have a whole bunch of people never taking anything for themselves, for one. A whole bunch of people giving, no one ever having anything. But people willing to contend, willing to go and be imprisoned for their, for their faith, willing to go and to be beaten for these different things, simply just for sharing the gospel. And then just closing, verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, for the faith of the gospel. Again, we're seeing that verse this morning. One spirit, one mind. Let your conversation be of the gospel of Christ. This morning as we, in the Sunday school, discussed truth and knowing that only the word of God is absolutely, objectively, completely true, Paul lived as if that were true. He lived with the conviction in these things, and he would tell you, and I too will tell you, it is only because of the Spirit of God working through Paul. Paul was an absolutely terrible person before Christ, was he not? But becoming a new creation because of the work of Christ, saved by grace, meeting Christ there on that road, and now we see him penning these words inspired by the Spirit, encouraging yet another church who seeks out, saying, no, Paul, you're the one in prison. We're concerned for you. And him returning with, you don't need to worry about me. I got plenty of people I can witness to here. The gospel's being furthered. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be getting beaten. Um, I, I don't know what it is to come, but I'm rejoicing. How much more encouraging is it to see people go through trials, continue to hold firm and rejoice in things when we actually see them going through it than this metaphoric, hypothetical understanding? And he too wants their joy to be abundant in Christ. The joy would continue to abound more and more along with their love. I am so thankful that even in some of these letters where Paul just simply is pouring out his heart of showing love for people that we see, we see a person, a person similar to us, understanding that it is all because of the work of Christ, it's not because Paul was super gifted. 
but simply him showing out his heart in the fullness of the gospel here that everything goes there. Everything is pointed to the gospel. Where would we be without the gospel of Christ? What would you have? What confidence? What hope? What certainty would you have apart from the work of God? This is why we see that those who are without God are lost. And we all know what it's like to be lost. Some of us a lot more than others. I'm really bad with directions. You know, east is right, west is left. That's how it works for me. We all know what it is to be lost. Those apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, they are lost. And this is not just lost for a time, lost for all of eternity. This is why Paul was willing to take the stripes on his back, willing to live a life in faithful service, even leading up to his own death. Because Paul believed and knew it was true, confident of these things, and lived a life in faithful service to that, while saying, hey, being in heaven with my Savior sounds absolutely wonderful. It's a magnificent, magnificent desire. But to be here currently as God wills is to be better for all of you. Neither option was bad, but Paul knew that wasn't his call. Paul knew to be faithful. And I think most of what our Christian life could be summed up in is just be faithful. That's your job. God does everything else. Anything that's effectual, God is the one who does it. And that should be infinitely comforting to each and every one of us. Let's pray.